Well, amen. Good morning, church. What a, what a wonderful Sunday, right? The worship was awesome. The baptisms were great. Um, and uh, it's so good to be with you here. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Will Franco. I'm one of the teaching pastors here um, at the church. And it's so good to be with you here this morning. And uh, this morning we are continuing our seven-week series uh, entitled Weapons of Self-Destruction. And what we are doing in this series is we are working our way through the seven deadly sins. Now, the thing about the word deadly is that deadly can seem so far away. Like it seems like something you do right before it all falls apart. But the goal of this series is to teach you and even to remind ourselves as teachers uh, that the seven deadly sins are actually much more like the seven daily sins. And what we're going to see as we go through these, this series is that with each one of these sins, these are behaviors, these are patterns that we willingly participate in and that when we do, uh, we halt our spiritual progress at best, sorry, we, we, we hinder it at best and we halt it at worst. And so this morning we are going to be addressing uh, the sin of anger, the sin of of wrath. So here's how we're going to do it this morning. This morning we're going to look at this uh, sin of anger under two headings. Uh, we're going to begin by looking at the problem of anger. Get this, that up. Okay, well here are the two points. They'll, they'll, they'll figure it out at the, at the back at some point. So uh, we're going to begin by looking at the problem of anger. And then after we look at the problem of anger, we are going to look at the solution for anger. All right, so we're going to begin with the problem of it, and then we're going to conclude by looking at the solution for it. Now, in order to really understand the severity of this problem, what I want to do is I want to go to a very well-known passage on anger in the Bible. And if you have your Bibles, it comes from Matthew chapter 5. So it comes from the Sermon on the Mount. And for those of you who are new to the Bible, in the Sermon on the Mount, we have Jesus preaching to uh, Jews and to Gentiles alike. And in that sermon, in chapter 5, he addresses the subject of anger, and that's where we are going to be this morning. So uh, it's going to be here on the screen next to me, um, but uh, if you have your Bible, you can follow along with me um, in verse 21. Here's what it says. This is Jesus speaking. He says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. This is the word of the Lord. So uh, this morning, uh, what I want to do as we look at the problem of anger is I want to look at the problem of anger from four different directions. Or another way to put it, as we look at the problem of anger, I want you to see that anger is like an onion that has multiple layers to it. And if we're going to understand the severity of the problem, we have to understand each of the layers, okay? So in order to understand the problem of anger, we're going to look at anger um, from a few different perspectives. We're going to look at the power of it. We're going to look at the types of anger. Then we're going to look at the heart of anger. 
and then we will look at the impact. So let's begin by looking at the power of anger. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, and if you were reading along with me, you probably did. Uh, but when you look at what Jesus does here in the passage, right off the top, Jesus wants you to see the power of anger. He wants you to see that anger is one of the most powerful sins that you and I can commit. And to prove just how powerful anger is, he compares anger to murder. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, come on, that's, that's a bit much, Jesus. Like, that's one of those pastor things like that preachers do, right? You, you speak in hyperbole in order to make a point. We get it. Anger is bad. But let's, let's, let's calm down a little bit, right? Murder. But here's what's so fascinating about what Jesus is doing here. Jesus takes the sin that we are most likely to maximize, which is murder, and he compares it to a sin that we are most tempted to minimize, which is anger. So, so he, he takes a sin that we are most tempted to put on the top shelf, murder, and he compares it to a sin that we are most tempted to put on the bottom shelf, which is anger. Jesus says, anger is murder and murder is anger. Now, some of you might still be sitting here thinking, I don't know if that's really a thing. Well, let me explain to you why it is. Uh, one of the pastors that I listened to um, on this subject made a, made a really helpful illustration that I think helps connect why anger is murder and murder is anger. Here, here's what he said. He said, imagine if you and I, if someone gave you two acorns, okay, and you, you get one acorn and immediately you take it and you put it in your room and you never look at it again. The other acorn, though, you go outside and you dig a hole and you put it in the hole and you water it and you cultivate it and you make sure that it's in the proper environment for that acorn to grow. He said, on the surface, there's really nothing different between the two acorns. The, the only difference is, is that one was not put in an environment that helped it grow and the other was put in an in a, in a, in a ideal environment for it to grow. And here's what he says. He says that every single one of us has that acorn of anger. Every single one of us is born, because of our sin, we are born with that acorn. And so you might be sitting here this morning and saying, well, I've never murdered anyone. But what he argues is that the only reason why you haven't is because by God's grace, your acorn hasn't been watered. By God's grace, your acorn hasn't been put in the situation for it to grow. So the only difference between you and someone in prison who's committed murder is that they were put in a place where their acorn was cultivated and it grew, and you, by God's grace, were not. That is the only difference. But at the heart level, it is the same exact sin in God's eyes. Does that make sense? So here's a quote that I want to read to you. Um, and this comes from uh, Dr. Ed Welsh in his devotional on anger. He says, have you ever murdered? Easy question. No, you have never murdered. But before you feel satisfied that you have kept the law, Jesus asks another question. Have you ever been angry? You see where he is going? Jesus has just enlarged the boundary of murder so that it includes all kinds of anger. In order to do this, he links them at the level of the heart where they share the same lineage of selfish desire. We want something. Peace, 
money, respect, and we aren't getting it. The only difference is in our choice of weapons. Some use guns, others use words. Try this identity today. Murderer. Every person in here, to one degree or another, according to Jesus, not, not according to me, according to Jesus, is a murderer. Because in God's eyes, anger and murder are one and the same. They come from the same place. And they're one and the same. Okay? So that here, so we, what I want you to see here is, and I want you to see that clearly, there's a lot of power when it comes to anger. So that's the power of anger. If you can go back to uh, my list. Now that we've seen the power of anger, what I want to do now under this second point is I want to show you the types of anger. I believe that in order for us to truly understand the problem, we have to see that there are different types of anger. And in my study, in my reading of Scripture, what I see is that there's actually three different types of anger. One of them is good and the other two are bad. Okay, so let's begin with the good type of anger. The good type of anger is what the Bible calls righteous anger. Righteous anger. Now, righteous anger, this is a description for you. Righteous anger is outward focus, so it's not self-centered. It is bothered by sin and injustice. And it is zealous for God's kingdom and glory. So righteous anger is all these things. Outward focus, bothered or enraged by sin and injustice, and zealous for God's kingdom and God's glory. And the ultimate example of this, of righteous anger, is Jesus. When you look at the life of Jesus, if you, if you read the Gospels with the, this lens of anger, you actually would be surprised with how many times Jesus actually gets angry. He gets angry more than once. There's one part in the Gospels where there's a man with a withered hand and they're at the synagogue and Jesus looks over at the Pharisees and because it was the Sabbath, Jesus says, should I or can I or can I not heal this man? And the, the Pharisees are so focused on keeping the law that they don't answer. And it says that Jesus became angry with them. There's another part in the Gospels where uh, Jesus is in this specific area. I think he's in Peter's house, if I'm not mistaken. And, and there are people, there are parents who want to bring their children to Jesus. And the disciples are like, no, 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 no. Jesus doesn't have time for kids. Like, you keep them out there. He's got other things to do. He's got kingdom work to do. The Bible says that Jesus becomes angry with the disciples. And I think the most famous example of Jesus getting angry in the Bible is at the temple. He gets to the temple and he sees these money changers. He sees these people who are not respecting the, the temple of God and they are buying and trading and it's become a den of robbers, he says. And Jesus becomes so angry that he starts flipping tables and, and the, whole, the, whole, the whole festival just falls apart because Jesus is so angry. But what we see is that with each one of those examples, Jesus is displaying a righteous anger. He's not mad because of a personal offense. He is outward focused. He is bothered by sin and injustice. And he is zealous for God's kingdom and God's glory. Now, some of you may be sitting here thinking, well, pff, that's the only time I get angry. I, I only have a righteous anger. You can stop the sermon right there, Pastor. I got it. No. I don't even know you, and I know that's not true. 
99% of the time, you and I do not get angry. The, angry that we, the anger that we have is not a righteous anger. If we're being honest, the reason why a lot of us get angry is because we are zealous not for God's kingdom and glory, but for our kingdom and glory. Think about it. If the only thing you were zealous for was God's kingdom and glory, then you wouldn't actually get angry that much. But the reason why you and I get angry as often as we do is because what we're actually zealous for is for our kingdom and our glory. Okay? So, so the first type of anger, the only good one, is righteous anger. But what's so interesting about the Greek word anger in this passage is that Greek is so much better than English, like on multiple levels. But one of the reasons why Greek is so much better is because Greek, uh, it, these words have so much meaning to them. Usually when we hear anger, anger just means a certain type of person who flies off the handle. But, but in Greek, the, the Greek word there, uh, orgizo, it actually has two different meanings and it describes two different types of anger. There are two different types of anger. The first type of anger that this Greek word orgizo describes, if you could put the next slide up for me, uh, is hot anger. This, is, this, is, this language, hot and cold anger, is, uh, uh, comes from Dr. Ed Welsh. And here are some of the words that describe hot anger. This is the anger that many of us think of, right, when we think of anger. Jealousy, wrath, war, murder, quarrels. Explosive, rage, envy, hate, vengeful, attack, win, you, you got to win, right? Violence, oppressive, abuse. The Greek word orgizo means this type of anger. And for those of you who struggle with this type of anger, the moment you found out I was preaching on anger today, you're like, oh, here we go. This, this is going to be about me. I'm going to be elbowed throughout the whole sermon. But here's what's so interesting, though. Even though, yes, this is anger, sinful anger that God condemns, that Greek word orgizo can actually mean a different type of anger, too. It's not just the hot anger that we tend to think of when we think of anger. And get ready for this next list, because what you're actually going to see is that many of you who struggle with this second kind of anger, you might have never thought that anger was your thing. Look at what cold anger looks like. Cold anger is described with words like this, the silent treatment, withdrawal, indifference, cold shoulder, controlling, detached, keeping scores. Keeping scores is a big one, right? Like you have a wife who says, oh, I don't struggle with anger. I know everything my husband's ever done to me for the last 27 years, but I don't have any anger issues at all. Criticizing. Sarcasm. There's more. There's more. Keep it. Let's go to the next one. Uh, grumbling, complaining, defensive, frustrated, irritable, smoldering, superior, and gossip. So maybe up to this point, literally, up to, I, don't, I don't know how old you are, but up to this point in your life, you didn't think anger was a thing for you. But what's so crazy and amazing about the Bible is that the Bible is so much more nuanced with every subject than, than we are. And the Bible needs you to know, what Jesus needs you to know is that whether you struggle with hot anger or cold anger, you struggle with anger. 
And you know, one of the things that I've seen, and this, I've seen this both in my marriage and I've seen this just in ministry uh, as I've just pastored for over a decade now, is that almost often, almost always, the people who are the hot anger types tend to produce people around them who are the cold anger types. Have you noticed that? So, so if you're married to someone who has the hot anger, and that can be the husband or the wife, what tends to happen is the, in the, the people around them, and that's their spouse, their children, their coworkers, their family members, start to, in reaction to their hot anger, they start to react with cold anger. And so these individuals, the people who have been hurt by it, they, they, they feel this bitterness. They feel this passive aggressiveness. And, 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 and they're, they're, they're irritable and they're defensive. And, they, and they've been judging them for years. And all this time they've been thinking that the only person with, with anger issues in the house is the person with the hot anger. But hot anger people produce cold anger people. And so what happens with cold anger people is that they, 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 they keep it to themselves and they keep it to themselves. They keep it. And then, and then one day they blow up and do the hot anger and everyone's like, what happened to that? To them. Little did they know you were angry the whole time. And then you calm down again and then you start building up the cold anger again. But that's the cycle that many of us are in. So, so according to Jesus, these, these two types of anger are, are very important for us to remember. Because the, the first type of anger blows up. The second type of anger clams up. The, the, the first type of anger shouts and the second type of anger pouts. The, the, the first type of anger spews and the second type of anger stews. But they are both, according to Jesus, angry murderers. So, let's go back to the list. We've seen the power of anger. We've seen the types of anger. And what I want to look at next is I want to look at the heart of anger. And here's what I mean by the heart of anger. The question that I want to address here under this third section is what causes us to be so angry? See, for some of you, maybe you know that anger is kind of like your, your sin of choice. But maybe you've never dug deep enough to figure out why am I so angry all the time. Whether it's the hot anger or the cold anger. According to scripture, there are two reasons why you and I get angry. The first reason is idolatry. And the second reason is pride. Idolatry and pride. So the first reason why you and I get angry is idolatry. And, and I get that from James chapter 4. If, if I don't have time to jump into it now, but if, if you want to do a study on it, go to James chapter 4. And right at the beginning of James chapter 4, James says, why are there fights and quarrels among you? That's a great question, right? There's a lot of fights and quarrels in our life. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So, so, so he knows that we're not smart enough to answer the question, so he answers his own question. He says, why are there fights and quarrels among you? He says, is it not this, that there are passions at war within you? Now, here's what's so interesting about that word passions. In the Greek, the word passion there is, an, is the Greek word epithumia. Now, thumia in Greek is a desire. 
That's all it means. The word Greek in, in, uh, thumia in Greek means a desire. Epi, that, that prefix epi means over. So, 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 so here's what James is saying, and Paul uses this word all the time too. He says, and we'll actually talk about it when we, we address this, the sin of lust. The issue, James says, is not the thumia. We all have desires, but the issue is when we have epithumias, when we have over desires. See, the reason, James says, that you and I fight and quarrel is because even, even though we might be Christians uh, theoretically, even though we might worship Jesus theoretically, practically we have other functional saviors that we go to. Our identity, our security, our value come from things that are infinitely smaller than Jesus. And since, then, and since those things are seated on the throne of our hearts, when those things are threatened, we get angry. So, so if I functionally have my job as my idol, if my job is threatened, I get angry. If you functionally have politics as your idol, if someone attacks your politics or doesn't look view it the same way you do, you get angry. That, that's why this is so dangerous because he says that it's an over-desire. We are worshiping something smaller than Jesus, and when that thing is threatened, the claws come out. Look at this quote uh, from Pastor Tim Keller. He says, when anything in life is an absolute requirement for your happiness and self-worth, it is essentially an idol. Something you are actually worshiping. Listen to this. When such a thing is threatened, your anger is absolute. Your anger is actually the way the idol keeps you in its service, in its chains. Therefore... If you find that, despite all the efforts to forgive, your anger and bitterness cannot subside, you may need to look deeper and ask, what am I defending? What is so important that I cannot live without? It may be that until some inordinate, there's the word, inordinate desire is identified and confronted, you will not be able to master your which is why husbands and wives can get angry about totally different things. A husband will come home and be completely will be angry and irrational about work, and the wife is like, calm down, it's not that big of a deal. And then an hour later, the, the, the wife can be uh, irrational and angry about their kids, and the husband's like, calm down, it's not that big of a deal. The difference is, is that one is worshiping their job, and the other one is worshiping their kids. Their idol is being threatened. That's why this is such a dangerous sin. But it isn't. It's not just idolatry that causes us to be angry, but it's also our pride. Our pride. And where do I get that from? Well, in the passage, Jesus says, right after he brings up the, the concept of anger, he, he, he describes, he uses two examples. He says, if you call people raka or if you call people fool, those are examples of you being angry. But here's what's interesting about the word raka. I actually brought this up the last time I was here, not knowing I was going to preach on this passage. But here's what's interesting about the word raka and the word fool. The word raka is an Aramaic word that means less than nothing. It means worthless. It means someone who is inferior to you. So, so get this. Jesus says that in order for you to hold a grudge... You have to see someone as less than you. 
You have to see them as worthless. You, you have to see them as inferior. And that is why it's so easy for you to hold a grudge. Think about this. I don't know about you, but this is how it is in my life. I have found in my life that the grudges that I'm most tempted to keep for days and weeks and months and years are in the areas where I see myself never committing a sin. Right? So, so if, if someone, I don't know, uh, exaggerates a story, you're like, you know what, I can forgive that because I might be tempted to do that one day. But the sins that we are least likely to forgive are the ones that we see ourselves never committing. So a spouse cheats on their spouse and that spouse, the other spouse is like, I would never do that. And because of that, I will never forgive you and I will always be angry and I will always have that cold, passive, aggressive anger for the rest of our marriage. Why? Because in your eyes, you see yourself as incapable of committing that sin. So in that area, that person is less than you. That person is inferior to you. And so I can't forgive you because I'm above you. So that takes a lot of, this, it takes a lot of pride to stay angry. So whoever you're angry at today, you can do whatever you want with that anger, but I need you to understand that it takes a lot of pride to stay angry because you have to see yourself as superior and them as inferior. But then the other word there is the word fool. The word fool is, is interesting because in the Greek it's the word moral, which is where we get moron. So to, to be angry... You have to see, the, the word there means either moron or it means someone who is devoid of understanding. You have to see someone as incompetent, as, as less than you, as not, not, not all the, the, you know, not, not the sharpest knife in the drawer. And it's funny because for a long time, I'm going to be totally honest with you, before I studied this passage, my definition of anger was this. My definition of anger was my logical response to stupid people. That's why I always felt so comfortable getting angry. Because it was my logical response to stupid people. You're stupid. I'm not. I'm angry. That's where that word fool comes in. Jesus says that you are looking at someone as less than you when you are angry. So it takes pride, lots and lots of pride, to be angry for a day, a week, a month, a year, or a decade. So, we've seen the power of anger. We've seen the types of anger. We've seen the heart of anger. And I want to conclude here with the problem by looking at the impact of anger. Listen, one of the reasons why anger is such a powerful sin, one of the reasons why it's such a big problem is because of the impact that it has horizontally in your life and vertically in your life. Okay, so let's, let's real quickly look at horizontally. One of the things that happens, do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus says that anger is like murder. And some of you, even with everything I said earlier, you still might not believe that. But even if you never actually kill someone, here is why anger is like murder. Because when you are angry, you do things and say things that murder the people around you. And here's what I mean. You might murder someone's self-esteem. You might not even realize that right now you are murdering the self-esteem of the people in your life because of your anger. You might murder that. You might not only murder their, their self-esteem, you, you might also even murder their theology. Did you know that your children in many ways get their theology of who God is from you? And so if all they see you do is fly off the handle, the hot anger, or, or be passive-aggressive, the cold anger, 
you are actually modeling for your children what God is like. And so you can actually murder, not just their self-esteem, you can murder your children's theology of God. That's how dangerous anger is. And here's what happens. When you, and, and some of you have grown up in homes. By God's grace, I didn't grow up in an angry home. Actually, now I think about it, maybe it was more the cold anger than the hot anger. But, but, um, but, but, but here's the thing. Some of you have grown up in a home like that. You might have grown, that's the legacy you came from. And without you even realizing it, you're keeping that legacy going. But here's the issue. I need you to pay attention to this. The danger with being an angry person, remember what I said, hot anger people produce cold anger people. The, the danger with being an angry person is that everyone who is in your household or at your work or whoever, or maybe at your, or with your boss, your, your, your employees, the, the danger with being an angry person is that an angry person only produces hammers or nails. And here's what I mean. The people in your house from that moment on, based on the example you showed them, will either become hammers and, from, and for the rest of their life they will just look for conflict under every rock. Because they saw mom and dad do it or their aunt and uncle do it or grandma and grandpa do it or their boss do it. And they're like, you know what? That, that seems to work for them. They just get loud and they get whatever they want. And so from that moment on, that individual becomes a hammer and they look for conflict under every rock. That's one response. That's not biblical. The other response is they become nails and for the rest of their life, they avoid conflict at all costs. They, they don't, they, they're, they're conflict adverse. Because they've known that when dad gets mad or mom gets mad or whoever gets mad, I, I got to just be quiet and then they'll leave me alone. So, so you produce either hammers who look for conflict anywhere, everywhere, or you produce nails who uh, avoid conflict at all costs. And neither of those are biblical. Okay? But listen, it doesn't just affect you horizontally the people around you, but it also affects you vertically. Jesus in the passage, if you remember what he says, Jesus says, if you are at the altar and there remember that someone has something against you, leave the gift at the altar and go and fix it. Now, what's interesting is that we as Americans, we Americanize this. We, we modernize it. Like, oh, oh, I know what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying if I'm ever in a worship service and, and I remember that I have an issue with someone, I should walk out and send a text. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is so much more than that. Listen, the only altar on which Jews in that day would sacrifice on was the altar at the temple in Jerusalem. And the only time that the Jews would go there was on the Day of Atonement. So I need you to understand just how urgent and just how serious this is for Jesus. Jesus is saying, hey, this isn't just leaving a worship service and sending a text or making a call. Jesus is saying, if you are a Jew and you are at the temple in Jerusalem, many of those Jews travel days and weeks to get to this place. He says, you can be the next in line to sacrifice your, uh, your, your gift. If you are there and there realize that you have an issue to deal with, leave it there and go back. Think about how crazy that is. The one day a year. Leave it there and go back. The Day of Atonement isn't happening for you this year. Go fix it. That's how urgent this is, guys. It's God's not having it. So if you have felt distant from God the last weeks or months or years, maybe it has nothing to do with God. It has to do with your anger. God doesn't want you to be sacrificing if you haven't dealt with your relationships. That's what the whole book of 1 John is, that if you're not okay horizontally, don't act like you're okay vertically. 
God's not having it. That's how serious this is. So whoever you are, I, I don't know what they did to you. I don't know. And I'm not trying to minimize it. But I'm trying to tell you that anger is that serious in the eyes of God. So go back to uh, the two points, please. We've seen the problem of anger. No, the two points, the problem of anger and the... Great. Okay. So the problem of anger and the solution. So we've seen the problem. And what I want to do now is I want to conclude this morning by looking at the solution. Okay. So now that we have a better understanding of the diagnosis, right, I want to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at the cure. Now, I got to prepare you for this. The answer to anger is so unexpected that I could literally pause the sermon right here, give you 20 minutes to discuss it among you, and I promise you that not one of you would guess the right answer. That's how unexpected the answer was when I discovered it, when I discovered it. As I was studying and I was reading, I was blown away and completely caught off guard by what the actual answer to anger is. You ready for this? The answer to anger is anger. The answer to anger is anger. You're like, what? We've been talking about the whole time about how it's completely wrong and inappropriate and we shouldn't do it. How can the answer to anger be anger? Well, here's why. Because in the passage, the Greek word orgizo, I'm telling you, Greek is so much better than English, it has a, another meaning. The other meaning for the Greek word orgizo, and actually, interestingly enough, it's translated in this third way more than any other way in the New Testament. The other meaning for the word orgizo is the word wrath. Wrath. But when you do a word study throughout the New Testament, what you discover is that the wrath that it's describing is not our wrath. It's not human wrath. It's God's wrath. So get this. The answer to our sinful anger is God's righteous anger. The answer to our sinful anger is God's righteous anger. You see, when you look at the Old Testament, one of the things about the Old Testament that can make it hard to read sometimes is that I would argue in almost every situation, if not every single one, anytime you see someone sin, at some point their sin catches up with them and God's wrath falls on them. All throughout the Old Testament you see it again and again and again and again. People sin, they get away with it for a while, and then eventually the sin catches up and God's wrath falls on them. Now, here's the thing. If you're anything like me, I've always been kind of embarrassed of God's wrath, right? Like, like God's wrath and God's anger is like that drunk uncle at your family parties that you don't want anyone to know about. So when you bring your boyfriend over or your girlfriend over or your friends over, you're like, hey, keep, 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 keep Uncle Mike in the back, okay? Keep him in the patio. I, I, don't, want him, I, don't, I don't want anyone to meet Uncle Mike, right? For a lot of us, if you're anything like me, God's anger, God's wrath is like that uncle. We as Christians do everything in our power to hide God's wrath, to hide God's anger, because we want no one to know that God can be angry, that God can be wrathful. But here's the thing. What starts to happen when you think that way is that you're like, I'm, I'm a New Testament person. I'm not really big on the Old Testament. I'm a New Testament person because, because the God in the New Testament, he's so much nicer. He got up on the right side of the bed. He's not so cranky. Like he's all about grace and love. I'm, I'm a New Testament Christian. And so you might think that God changed, that he from at the end of Malachi, he's angry. And at the beginning of Matthew, he's happy. 
But that's not, that's not true because the Bible says God cannot change. So, so if, that's, if he can't change, then what happened? What happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Listen, the only difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is that someone took the full anger of God. Someone drank the full cup of wrath. Now, you would think that that someone was a very bad person, right? You're thinking, man, if someone took the full anger of God, if someone took the full wrath of God, that must have been the worst person ever. We, that must have been a Hitler or a, or a Stalin. What we see, though, in Scripture is that the person who took the full anger and the full wrath of God wasn't the worst person to ever live. It was the best person to ever live. And his name is Jesus Christ. Here's what's beautiful about Jesus Christ. At the Last Supper, Jesus is sitting there. And according to tradition, there's four cups that, are drink, that you drink throughout the Last Supper. But, but if you read the passage closely, which is this is the cup we drink when we do communion, it says that after the meal, Jesus lifted up the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. But what any Jew would know that a lot of us don't know because we don't know Jewish history is that the cup that came after the meal was the cup of blessing. Jesus lifts up the cup of blessing and he says, if you place your faith in me, you will be blessed. So listen, if you're here this morning and you have not placed your faith in Jesus yet, the amazing thing about the Bible is that when you place your faith in him, you get the cup of blessing. But the story doesn't stop here. What we discover is that later on that night, there was another cup. It says that Jesus is in the garden. He is sitting there and he is praying and he's in anguish. And he says, Lord, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. But the question is, what cup can Jesus be talking about? What cup can he be making reference to? What we see in scripture is that the cup that Jesus is talking about when he gets to the garden is the cup of wrath. So think about how beautiful this is. Jesus Christ takes the cup of blessing and says it's for everyone. He takes the cup of wrath and says it's for me. Come on. That's what the Bible says. That's what the gospel tells us. So Jesus Christ took the cup of wrath, to get this, that you and I deserved so that we might get the cup of blessing that he deserved. Jesus drinks the cup down to the last drop, the one that we deserved, and he did it for you and for me. That's why it says in Philippians chapter 2 that when Jesus Christ came down, he emptied himself, the Bible says. He made himself nothing, which is another way of saying at the cross, Jesus Christ made himself raka. Jesus made himself worthless. He made himself a nobody. Listen, at the cross, Jesus Christ made himself a nobody so that the nobodies might become somebodies. At the cross, Jesus experienced murder so that we might experience mercy. At the cross, Jesus Christ experienced the fires of hell so that we might experience the joys of heaven. At the cross, Jesus Christ experienced God's punishment so that we might experience God's peace. At the cross, Jesus Christ took the cup of wrath so that we might get the cup of blessing. At the cross, Jesus Christ took the retributive wrath of God so that by faith in him, we might experience the redemptive love of God. Listen, to the degree that you see Jesus getting you and giving you 
vertical reconciliation with God. To that same degree, you will seek horizontal reconciliation with others. Amen? Let's pray.